A student once asked the brilliant Dr. Albert Einstein, Dr. Einstein, how many feet are there in a mile? Einstein astonished his student by saying, I don't know. The student felt sure the great teacher was joking and until Einstein explained to him, I make it a rule not to clutter my mind with simple information, which in a few minutes I can find in a book. Interesting, interesting story. But what he was trying to do is, is categorize information into what's vital, what is most important, and what he can get from various sources, so what maybe isn't as important to remember. This morning, as we, we come to Second Timothy, we want to talk a little bit about vital information and what we choose to talk about rather than remember versus what we choose not to talk about or what we choose to spend our time thinking about. When we think of a, a small church, one of the, the characteristics of a small church often is that news travels fast, right? Yeah, if, if, if something good happens in the church, how, how long does it take for news to get around the church? Minutes. Wow. <laughs> well, with Facebook now, yeah. When Edgar and Patricia, their adoption was final, we knew and were celebrating within minutes of it being final. Because Edgar posted and we just all praised God together and it was a wonderful thing. Sometimes other news travels fast, just in circles of friends, doesn't it? I mean, th- this week, a couple of people that know that I, I have a mild passing interest in baseball... Um, sought me out and said, did you hear the trade the Tigers made? Not to point out any Tigers fans or anything. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's the greatest trade ever. No, just kidding. (laughs) But because we talk about baseball, they know I like baseball, I know they like baseball, and so it it travels fast. Sometimes bad information travels fast, doesn't it? We we have to be careful because what's one of the, the types of information that travels faster than any other? Gossip, rumors. It's easy for it just to spread like wildfire because we want to have something to say. We want to have some, some tidbit of information that someone else doesn't know. Well, this morning we come to Paul's instruction to Timothy and he's talking about passing on information. He's talking about what kind of information to pass, pass along and how to be bold for Christ. That if we're to categorize information, we have baseball trades and we have good things about the family. There's gossip. There's all this kind of things. But the most important thing that we can talk about is salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. And Paul encourages Timothy with this because Timothy was a little timid at times. He struggled with being bold for that at times. And and as I come to this text and as I studied through this text and meditated on it this week... Hard text for me to teach. Because as I read through it, I'm thinking, I I identify far more with Timothy than I do Paul here. I, I at times have been timid with sharing the Gospel. At times I've come home at night and kicked myself for missing opportunities to share the greatest news that anyone will ever hear. I can remember with my neighbor working for months to get up the courage to share the gospel. And we'd talk about church and we'd, we'd do different things. And, and so I was, I was working a relationship and that's not bad. That's a good thing. And finally, I remember one time I was uh, at a window of our house and he was over talking and, and I said, you know what? I, I'd like to share something with you. And I shared the gospel with him. 
He said, you know, that is the greatest news ever. I accepted Christ a month ago. Which I praise God for, but I'm thinking through why did it take me so long to tell this neighbor that I cared about the most important thing he would ever hear. That has to do with eternal life or eternal death. And so I come to this text convicted and challenged. And I pray that as we study it together that it does the same thing for you. I don't want to be alone in having my toes stepped on. So I'd like to st- to God to step on all of our toes. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And you know from our introduction to 2 Timothy last week that Paul has, has been taken, or has been arrested once again. He's in his second imprisonment probably in Rome. This time not a nice cushy house arrest, but now he's on death row and he's, he's in a very dark and dismal situation. He knows his life is going to be taken soon. And he's writing his, his last words to Timothy to pass on the faith, to pass on and encourage Timothy to be bold, to take the baton. And so last week he does that, he did that first by showing how generations react and relate to each other, that, that Timothy is connected to generations of faithful servants, and after him will be generations of faithful servants of God, that it's not about him, it's about God's grand design. And he ended last week with verse 7, and I'd like to start with the same verse. 7 is what we would call a transition verse. It fits with both paragraphs. And so it's a conclusion for the first six, seven verses, and it's an introduction for the passage today. And Paul said, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so Paul concludes this idea of you're ministering in a line of ministers by saying, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, of timidity, to to shy back and not be bold for the gospel. He's given you a spirit of power or boldness, an ability to minister, of love, an ability to care for people, of sound mind, which is right thinking, wise thinking, all things that are essential for ministry. And Paul here is instilling in Timothy, God's given you these things. It's not based on whether you have those abilities naturally but whether or not your God is big enough to give you the strength to do that. And He is. And so, Paul then picks up this theme and starts to talk about boldness. He starts to talk about shame. And whether Timothy should be ashamed of the Gospel, ashamed of Paul, or whether he should stand tall and proud for the Gospel and for Paul. And so we come to verse 8. And as we, as we study through this, enjoy the text this morning. And my, my goal is not to shame us into being bold, which is so many times our strategy, but the goal of the text and where Paul goes with it is to joy us into being bold. To show us how incredible salvation is. To change our mindset to where we can't help but talk about God rather than it being a drudgery. But he starts in verse 8 by saying in point number 1, share and suffer for the Gospel without shame. Share is the word I want you to remember there. Share and suffer for the Gospel without shame. 
Great way to start. I like the share part. Let's skip the suffer part. But verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. So he starts by saying, don't be ashamed. And the word for shame there is some painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of an event or an activity. So it basically is, well, people will look down on me. People will despise me if I do this certain thing. We struggle with that now. My kids already, Dad, I'm embarrassed to do that. Yeah, you can't be embarrassed yet. That comes later. That doesn't work anymore. That worked when they were five. Oh, okay. But now, no, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to do that, Dad. Well, being ashamed is that and so much more. It's realizing that people will despise me or somehow think less of me because of this situation. Now, some culture helps us understand these verses a little bit. In the Western world, we are what we would call a guilt-based culture. Okay, And so in a guilt-based culture, our, our interactions with good, right and wrong are based on what we should and shouldn't do individually. Okay, So in a guilt-based culture, Joe, if you do something wrong, what do you want to do? Let's say you robbed a bank last night. <laughs> then Joe is, is given over to the police and the courts, and he is judged based on what? Did he rob a bank? Okay, so that's a guilt-based culture, very individual-based culture. That's what the Western world is. The Eastern world, and especially the world of, of Bible times, and it's still true today of the Eastern world, is what we would call a shame-based culture. A shame-based culture or honor-shame society. And instead of guilt being used as a deterrence, shame is used as a deterrence. And shame specifically with how are you reflecting on the expectations of the group? So then, instead of, Joe, you did the wrong thing by robbing the bank, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. A shame-based culture would say, Joe, do you realize the shame that you've brought to the group? Do you realize the shame you've brought to your family, to Village Bible? What you've done reflects on all of us. And this is a... a, a, Whoa. (laughs) I almost fell. This is because of a group mindset. So this is a group-based culture where the group and the identity of the group is so important. And, you know, which is right, which is wrong? Not going to get into that. I think a balance of the two, actually, because we are guilty before God if we've sinned. But yet we do need to keep in mind the group. And, and we do reflect on our families and the group we're in. But so there, what they prized was honor and shame. This is why even today, missionaries in the Muslim world have to use some different strategies. Because if a single member of a Muslim family comes to Christ, that is so difficult for them to stand for Christ because they are shamed by their family. They are ostracized, which often is the result of a shame-based culture. And so one of the strategies of missions in the Muslim world is to reach families. Because now you have a unit that, that you're not shaming one person and a unit can stand together. Now that's the background for what Paul is telling Timothy today because they lived in a shame-based culture. And so what Paul did, what Paul, the actions that the government was taking against Paul would reflect on the group. In this case, Christians in the church. So Paul 
death row, convicted as a criminal, shamed, what does that do for the church? Some thought it shamed the church. And so that's the background that we need to read the text today. And that's why, for Timothy, this was more than just, oh, do I stand up for Christ? This was something that was deeply ingrained in him, the issue of shame versus honor. And so Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And he lists two things to not be ashamed about. The first one, do not be ashamed of talking about our Lord. The testimony about our God. It's a call to openness. Timothy, stand tall for the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be afraid that Jesus was crucified because He rose again. Because He secured salvation. This is not something to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed when government wants to put you in prison because you believe in Jesus Christ and not the emperor. Don't let those expectations deter you. That same call to openness is so applicable today. As we at times struggle with being forward with our faith, with being open with our faith. Now, no one here has to risk being thrown in prison this afternoon if we say we're a Christian. But I know that we risk shame, ridicule, that, that we might risk job promotions, that we might risk grades in a college class when we are, are willing to stand and tell the professor that's not what the Bible teaches. See, there are ways that we stand for Christ and, and risk shame. And so this call to Timothy is a call to us Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And secondly, Paul says, nor of me his prisoner. Nor of me his prisoner. And and so Paul says, don't be ashamed of the people of God either. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the people of God. This is a a loyalty to Paul issue, but ultimately a loyalty, loyalty to God. And so Paul is saying, I know I'm in prison. I know I'm on death row. But don't be ashamed. There's a solidarity of believers. The challenge here is do we stand with other believers? Do we stand for other believers? If someone else in your college class, college students that are secular universities, if someone else stands up and says, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe evolution is true and this is why. I believe God created all things. Will you stand with them? Or will you just sit there and say, I'm glad they're taking the heat. Preach it, brother. There's a solidarity that Paul here is expressing to Timothy of saying, stand with me. Don't be ashamed of me. In so doing, Timothy would encourage Paul. Timothy would would come alongside and tell Paul he's not alone. And so Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Then he gives what he wants Timothy to do. But be willing to suffer. But be willing to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Let us see there is be willing to suffer for the gospel. Do not be ashamed of talking about our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the people of God. Be willing to suffer for the gospel. To stand. To join with. And that's, that's Paul's request is join with me. Don't leave me hanging here. Don't just share in the Gospel and enjoy the benefits of eternal life, but share in the suffering for the Gospel because you're willing to say, I am a Christian. I love God. 
He has given eternal life, and without Him there is eternal death. That's an important message. The world opposes the Gospel. The world opposes truth. As we've been going through the Truth Project, it's been just marvelous to have discussions and to see so many of you going through that. Which if you're still interested in coming, please join one of the groups and come. But we've been talking about the worldview that opposes God's view. That opposes a God that is outside of the box. That has created all things and all things are for His glory. And that has intervened to bring salvation. Darkness doesn't like light. Darkness will fight against light. And so don't be ashamed to suffer for the Gospel. Expect it. In John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen... But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that I said, the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Paul says, Timothy, be bold, be willing to, to share in my sufferings. Don't be ashamed of me. And the last phrase of verse 8 is, is key by the power of God. Paul says it will only be through God's strength, Timothy, you're able to do this. Are you praying? Are you in the Word, Timothy? Are you relying on God? Are you seeking His strength? Or do we go about our weeks just, just getting by without even a thought of seeking God for His help, for His strength, for His power? Challenging first words of Paul to Timothy. But then verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 give what I think is the core of this section, the core of this passage, the most important thing to remember of this passage. Glory in the glorious gospel. Keyword being glory. First keyword was to share, and this is the glory. Glory in the glorious gospel. Many of you have been saved a long time. I was saved at a very young age in the church. And it's hard to even remember that far back. And when we're saved for a long time, we can sort of get used to it, right? Sort of like everything else in life, as we see broken things around the church or around our house, after we see them a few times, we get used to it. And we can get used to salvation and take it for granted. Don't! Don't! It is the most incredible thing, that we, the gift that has ever been given to us. And we're to revel in it. We're to glory in it. And remind ourselves of it. It's why we take communion together once a month. To remind ourselves of the glory of the Gospel. And so Paul in verses 9 and 10 just shares the glory of the Gospel as a motivation. One author wrote, there are few passages in the New Testament which have in them and behind them such a sense of the sheer grandeur of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've loved meditating on these verses this week. Verse 9, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, 
who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Amen? Amen. So let's break that down and glory in the Gospel. The first thing you see in verse 9 there, the first half of verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Who saved us? God did. Who saved us? God did. Who saved us? Thank you. Now, now we're getting Paul's point. He starts by saying, and he's talking about God, by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Who's not mentioned there as, as, the, as doing the action? Us. This is one of the first glories of the Gospel. God does the work of salvation. God did the work. We don't save ourselves. In fact, we can't save ourselves. And in just three words, who saved us, past tense, done, completed, not by my effort, but by His effort. Man, that's amazing. That's glorious. He saved my life when I couldn't. I was dying. And He saved my life. It says, and He called us to a holy calling. Some of your versions say to a calling of holiness or to a life of holiness. That it wasn't just this, this saving and you're done, but then He has called us to live a holy life, to live for Him, to stand for Him. And that is our calling in life, is to live for our Savior. Again, He's the one that made it possible and made it happen. We have a life debt to the King of Kings because He saved our lives. And so our response is that we owe Him everything. We owe Him everything. And think about life debts that you've seen, whether it be on TV or in shows. I, I think about Mount Whitney and when Patrick saved my life. He's like, oh no, you're, you're so not bringing this up. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was a, it was a difficult day and, and I guess I was a little delusional. I don't remember much of it. And, and Patrick stayed behind and got me down the mountain. Maybe saving my life is a little bit extreme, but... I owe you a life debt. So maybe I should follow Patrick around and say, what can I carry your books at school? <laughs> carry your books at school and, and you know, fill your car up with gas for you. Well, you might like that one. Um, but, but because of what he did for me, some would say I, I owe him a life debt. Now, now we, we have enough ways that we've helped each other that I think we're good. <laughs> um, but... God saved us not from a death on the top of a mountain that is temporary. He saved us from eternal death for infinity, eternal separation from God, and brought us into His holy relationship and presence. Man, that's glorious. And so our response is we owe Him a life debt. We owe Him everything. Paul goes on and, and let her be there we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Sort of the flip side of A, God does the work of salvation. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. In fact, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be saved. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And this is glorious. Because it says, nothing I did 
earned salvation. In fact, we know from Scripture that we are sinners from birth. We are sinners from conception. And and so there is no way that on my own I could get to heaven. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how many times I come to church. It doesn't even matter if I come to extra things at church. Nothing I do can earn favor with God. And that sounds like bad news, except he goes on and says, but because of His own purpose and grace. Because He chose us. He called us. Simply because He wanted to show His grace to us. What is grace? Undeserved favor. And we like the favor part, but remember the undeserved part. Because we appreciate it so much more when I realize I'm a sinner. I have walked away from God. Nothing I do can earn my way to heaven. Nothing. But the good news, the glorious news, is that God looked at me and said, I have a purpose for you. I love you. And by my grace, because I know you, you will be my child. I think about adoption. And one of the joys that we tell our, our two that are adopted, if they ask, well, what about my, mom, my, my, my other mommy and daddy? We say, you know, we chose you. We chose you because we love you and want you to be part of our family. God chose you because he loves you and wants you to be part of his family. That stirs something inside of you That's glorying in the Gospel. It says that He did this from all eternity, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before we were born, before we were conceived, before we were even thought of, before anything was made, God knew what His relationship with you would look like and brought you to Himself. That's special. That's amazing. He gave us this gift through Christ Jesus. Incidentally, just a little side note, this is another verse that that reminds us that Christ Jesus is pre-existent. He has always existed as part of the Godhead. He wasn't created when He was born. He is God. And so, God does the work of salvation, but we do nothing to earn or deserve our salvation. Which makes it even more of an incredible gift. We need a Savior. We need Christ to drop into our lives and rescue us from the stranglehold of sin. But we have to believe in Him. Dr. Stearns was preaching one day and he was preaching the Gospel. And a gentleman came up to him afterward and says, I don't like your way of preaching. I don't care for all this talk of Christ dying for the lost. Instead of preaching the death of Christ on the cross, it's better to be up to date. We want to be relevant, right? Preach Jesus, the teacher, an example. Would you be willing to to follow? The answer was, would you then be willing to follow him if I preach Christ as the great example? I would, said the gentleman. I will follow in his steps. Then Dr. Stern said, well, let's take the first step then. Who did no sin. So the first step is you need to be sinless. Can you take that step? The man looked down and said, no. No, I I do sin, I must admit. 
Well then, said Dr. Cern, your first need of Christ is not as an example, but as a Savior. It's a reminder to us, we need a Savior. But in his glory, in his love, in his grace, he has called us to himself. Our response should be incredible gratitude. It should blow us away. Better than any Christmas gift you'll get in a few weeks. Even even if someone has the perfect gift for you, this is better. And so our response should be more gratitude than any gift we receive at Christmas. More gratitude than anything else on this earth because this is eternal fellowship with Christ, with God. As we come into Thanksgiving and you'll sit around the table and ask, what are you thankful for? It's not just a cliche to say the gospel. Because that is the most important gift. And I know we're spending some time on these verses, but glory in the gospel. Let it blow you away. Let it create gratitude. Verse 10, Paul goes on, in which now has been manifest, and he's talking about the work of Christ in the gospel, which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And, and whereas before he said you were called and, and you were chosen from the beginning of time, now Christ has come, and this is a reference to his incarnation at Christmas time, or what we celebrate at Christmas time, and then he came to earth to save us, to die on the cross in our place so that we could have salvation if we will repent and believe on Him. Now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. But then read on. Who abolished death. It's great to talk about the great things Jesus did, but let's get to some incredible things. He abolished death. Spiritual death is being spoken of here. Eternal separation from God. And he rendered it, the word means to render ineffective or powerless. And so death has no power over those that believe. We'll die here on earth, yes, in our physical bodies. We will never die. Those that believe will never die because we will eternally have communion with our Lord and Savior. Wrap that up and put it under the tree. What an incredible thing. So he abolished death through his resurrection. And then the verse goes on. Not only did he keep us from dying spiritually. Get my spot here in the verse. He abolished death, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so he, he, he conquered death when he was on that cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, he took the separation on himself that we deserved for our sin. He took the death that we deserved and he conquered it, eventually saying, it is finished. The deal is done. Death is defeated. Eternal life is given. What an incredible gift. No wonder Paul quotes when he, in 1 Corinthians when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? 
But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news, which is what the gospel means. That's great news, and we're to glory in it. What if I told you you had three months to live? And you're going through life saying, I have three months to live. And then someone comes to you with a medicine that will will cure your disease and guarantee ten more years of life. And you take it and you're healed. Do you tell anyone? I would bet we couldn't shut you up. Because you would tell everybody. For ten years. Paul's point to Timothy is what about an eternity? What about an eternity? And we have the cure. I loved what John Stott said. Instead of RIP, rest in peace, we should put CAD on our, our headstones. Christ abolished death. RIP has this finality to it, this sadness to it. But man, CAD, Christ abolished death, that's something special. Our response to this can only be worship. Can only be worship. To come to God in gratitude, to bow before Him, and to glory in what He's done. That's the core of this passage. I'm going to give you the, the last two points And then we want to do just that, worship. In verses 11 to 14, trust is the key word. Trust. God guards our life and future. So step out in faith for the Gospel. Be entrusted. His purpose is our focus. That's the the title of our series. But God guards our life and future. He has our back. He has it taken care of. So why not step out in faith for this glorious Gospel? Reading at verse 11, For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. And we see that first part there as Paul communicated the Gospel no matter the consequences. He communicated the Gospel no matter the consequences. There's no shame in proclaiming Christ. This was his divine task and he's passing it on to Timothy. And he goes on to say, boldly trust the God of the Gospel. In in what is an incredible verse, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what He has entrusted in me. And Paul's telling Timothy, boldly trust the God of the Gospel. Why can you step out in faith? Why can you boldly say, tell people you're a Christian and tell people about the Gospel without shame? Because God has you covered. I know whom I have believed. It's a perfect tense. It's a permanent knowing. And it didn't say, I know what I have believed. It said, I know whom I have believed. It's built in our relationship with God and His character. God will not let you down. So he starts with who God is, God Almighty. He's expressing he knows he can trust Him. I know whom I've believed. And he ends with, I am sure He will ensure my salvation. I am convinced or persuaded that He will preserve me. That He will keep me. He will guard until that day when He returns what has been entrusted to me. The Gospel. We don't have to worry 
about, how, about somehow slipping up and saying, well, I don't know if, if I'm going to be a, a Christian anymore. I don't know if God's going to save me. We're not guarding it. He is. And that's why we can step out in faith. I can just picture Paul after this verse saying, so what's the problem? Trust the God of the Gospel. So what's the problem? Why not step out in faith? Why not be bold? Why shrink from opportunities? And I'm convicted by that. Because when I shrink from opportunities, when you shrink from opportunities, what's really happening is it's a trust issue in God Almighty. Do I trust that God will watch over me if I share with someone the greatest news ever? Well, when you put it that way, Pastor Ron, that that sounds a little silly. That's how I feel. In my life, when I pass opportunities, it's silly. And I'm challenged by this. To tell people about Christ, the glory of the Gospel. Paul goes on with Timothy, and he encourages them to move forward in faith and love, relying on the Holy Spirit. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. This is a passing of the baton. And next week we'll look at Paul then telling Timothy to pass the baton to others. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The faith being a knowledge of God, a commitment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love there being to love others as well. And Paul's giving them the key to ministry. The key to every ministry leadership position we have here, where are you at with God? How are you treating others? Do you love God first? And then do you love others? And Paul's reminding Timothy that that's the core of ministering to others. By the Holy Spirit in verse 14, who dwells within us, the Holy Spirit gives strength. Guard the good deposit entrusted in you. And the imagery here is that salvation has been given to us. The glories of the gospel. It's been entrusted to us. To guard it means we stay with sound teaching, we stay with the truth, and we share it. And not bury our talents. And finally, point number four, follow examples of lives lived for the gospel. Live. Live. Follow examples of lives lived for the gospel. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy. So those were the bad examples. Possibly in Asia where Paul was arrested. They possibly abandoned him because of shame. You don't want to be identified with a criminal. But in verse 16, the good example, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And he's bringing shame back in. And he says, this man, he refreshed me. He cheered me. He was not ashamed of my chains. He was willing to be identified with me and to stand with me. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. In, in, on death row in prison there, that would not have been an easy thing. And you would have had to make deals with the guards even to visit a prisoner, to be lowered down. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul brings up a faithful man who was willing to live the gospel. 
Not just share it with people, but to identify with it, to encourage others that were to share in the Gospel. I'd like to end by worshiping together. Worship team, if you could come up. And as they're coming up, would everyone stand and have your notes in your hand? Because a young preacher from Zimbabwe who was going through persecution wrote this, and it's in your your notes there. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, and prayed up, and paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. Whose life was threatened. Can we say that? Can we say I am a disciple of Jesus? Can we make this our commitment? This morning as we sing Jesus, thank you. We worship him for the glories of the gospel. Reflect on what that commitment means. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. We're just saying, Jesus, thank you. Don't waste Thanksgiving. Don't waste Thanksgiving and not mention the most important thing we are thankful for to someone that comes and spends the day with you. It's a natural chance to be bold and unashamed of the gospel. If you're here today and you have never accepted Christ, don't waste Thanksgiving. Today is a chance that you have to say, I believe, I repent of my sins, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place, and that He rose again, and I give Him my life and you will have the best Thanksgiving ever because the best gift ever. Don't waste that. If that's on your heart, I'm going to hang around up here afterwards. Come talk to me. Come talk to me and let's do business with God today and take care of that. But don't waste Thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Lord God, we glory in your glorious gospel. Unearned, undeserved, but freely given because you have chosen and you have loved. Wow. Lord, may we be so enthralled with that that we can't help but talk about it. Thank you, God, for salvation, for eternity of fellowship with you. In Jesus' name.